Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, that's our text for this morning. Uh, there, there is no grand introduction this morning because this is part three in a series, and uh, we, we, we know where the text has been, we know where the text is going. Mar- uh, Jesus is, uh, is going to conversate with a scribe this morning. He began speaking with the Pharisees and the Herodians two weeks ago back in chapter 13. Last week we saw Jesus uh, conversating. Uh, with the Sadducees over the issue of the resurrection, and this morning uh, he will speak to a scribe over the issue of scriptural interpretation. So if if you have the ability this morning, I would encourage you to stand with us as we read God's word. This is Mark, who is the pen for Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, and these are the words that he pens. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides them, him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to take notes this morning, as I often do on Sunday mornings. I think you'll, uh, you'll think about the text better. You'll probably retain information a little bit better. What you've got on your outline this morning is the, the movement of the text. These are the scenes of the text, and so I'll pepper in some application as we go here. Uh, but scene number one, the first thing that we see studying our text is a curious question. A curious question. Let me direct your attention back to verse 28. Look there in your Bible. And one of the scribes came up to him after having heard Jesus disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him this question, which commandment is most important of all? In our study over the last two weeks, Jesus has gone toe-to-toe with some of the most powerful, some of the most influential religious leaders in Jerusalem. Again, we've already mentioned this, but back verses 13 through 17, the the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus in his talk concerning whether taxes should be paid to Caesar or not. Uh, Last week in verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees questioned the resurrection in an attempt to, to make a resurrection look foolish and furthermore in an attempt to discredit Jesus who himself twice already in Mark's gospel had declared that he would rise from the dead. And so now, this morning, we meet one of the scribes. And Mark tells us that this scribe came up and heard Jesus disputing with the Sadducees. 
And this scribe had taken note that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well. So here's the scribe, he comes up, he hears the interaction, he hears the conversation, he, he hears the dialogue between Jesus and the Sadducees concerning the issue of the resurrection and noting that Jesus answered the Sadducee well, now he, the scribe, has a question that he wants to ask of Jesus. I love this word well, by the way. He noted that Jesus answered them well. The word well, it's kalos. It means beautiful or finely or admirably or complete. As a matter of fact, it was the same word used to describe Jesus back in Mark chapter 7 after he had healed the man in the Decapolis. That was the, the predominantly Gentile pagan region to the southeast of most of Jesus' uh, travel and interaction and ministry. Uh, to the southeast there, Jesus healed that man who could neither hear nor speak. And after having done that, those who saw it declared that he, Jesus, has done all things well. Kalos, same word, same word. So this scribe here noticed that Jesus answered the Sadducees well, beautifully, completely, finally, admirably. Friends, let me remind you that Jesus does all things well. Jesus does all things well. Well, we should be astonished beyond measure, just like those who are in the Decapolis, as we read the scriptures, as we contemplate the glories of the gospel, knowing that the captain of our salvation does all things well. And so the scribes, which, by the way, literally, if you're a, if you're a note taker in your Bible, you, you might write there in the margin, if you're taking notes somewhere else, you might write the lawyers. It's, it's literally what the word means there. The scribes are the lawyers there. They were the experts in, in the religious law. They were, they were the studiers of the law. They were the interpreters of the law. They, they applied the law in its many rules and regulations. That's, that's who we're speaking about here. That, that's who's coming to Jesus asking the question. As a matter of fact, the scribes had combed through the law and they had identified some three, I'm sorry, some 613 separate commandments that were then broken down into 365 prohibitions. In other words, 365 things that thou shalt not do and then 248 exhortations to obey, thou shalt. So the scribes, after having studied the scriptures, said there are 613 laws. Friends, we struggle to keep a few. Can you imagine the weight, the, the, the heavy weight of being under such, a, such a, an oppressive, weighty set of legalistic regulations and rules? 613 laws. 365 thou shalt not, 248 thou shalt. And while the scribes believed that all the laws were binding, they assumed a distinction uh, between the law. Those that were weightier, those that were heavier laws, larger, and those that were lighter. And they had developed an elaborate system for grading the commandments, and they often attempted to sum up the whole law in a single unifying command. And the scribe in our text that comes to Jesus, he comes with a question that was commonly debated in the religious schools. And so scribes, as they were learning the scriptures, as they were being prepared for scribalship, they would oftentimes 
frequently sit around in their religious schools and they would debate this very question. Which, which of the commandments is the, the greatest commandment? Which of the commandments is the greatest commandment? Which is most important of all? I think the scribe asked this question of Jesus for several reasons. First, again, this was a common debate amongst the scribes, but it was also a, an issue of contention between the scribes and the Pharisees. They would oftentimes disagree. They both debated which, which commandment is greatest of all, but they, they had a hard time agreeing on which it was. Uh, and so I think that's the first reason that, that uh, this scribe comes and asks the question. The scribe who had just witnessed Jesus answer the Pharisees' question about the, or the, the Sadducees' question about the resurrection so brilliantly probably thought that, that Jesus could settle this debate once and for all. And then lastly here, I think the scribe is looking for some sort of inward validation. In other words, he's hoping that he will measure up well against whatever commandment Jesus utters. So there was a debate amongst the scribes, which commandment is, greater, uh, is, is the greatest, is most important. There was also a debate between the scribes and the Pharisees on this issue. So I think the scribe is wanting to, Jesus to kind of settle uh, the, the score once and for all. But, but lastly, and, and, and maybe most importantly, I think the scribe is waiting for Jesus' reply so that he might be able to measure himself against Jesus' uh, word there. You see, when your religion is built on human achievement, you're always looking for another box to check. If, if, your, if your religion, so to speak, is, is one of human achievement, then you'll always be looking for another box to check. How do I measure up? Did I do okay there? Did I do okay here? Do I meet the mark there? Having said that, the word which there in your Bible, look, look at the the question that the scribe asked there, which commandment is the most important of all? Well, the little word which there, it's the Greek pronoun poia. And it, it carries with it the idea of, of what sort or of what nature. In other words, I don't think the question the scribe is asking here is for Jesus to, to choose an individual commandment out of the ten that is more important than the others. I think the question the scribe is asking here is what overarching characteristic, what, what, what nature of the commandments rises to the surface? You catch that? I don't think he's asking Jesus, okay, here's commandment one, here's commandment two, here's commandment three, four, all the way through ten. Which one of these is the most important? And I think he's asking there, what is the nature of the commandments? What is the character of the commandments that is the greatest of all? Which makes a whole lot of sense out of Jesus' reply as Jesus summarizes the law. And so number one there, we see a curious question. Number two, write this down, a compelling answer. We'll spend the majority of our time here this morning. A compelling answer. The question is, which of the commandments is most important of all? Look at Jesus' answer. Find verse 29 there in your Bible through verse 31. Jesus answers this scribe, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no, com- no other commandment greater than these. You see what Jesus does right here in his answer? In Jesus' reply to the scribe's question, which was, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus' answer goes far beyond the debated weightier and lighter classifications. Jesus doesn't even answer the question in categories of which is weightier and which is lighter. Jesus' reply goes far beyond that to the most important command and its inseparable companion, which together summarize the the whole law, the, the entire law. Jesus' response here to the scribe's question is actually a quote of two separate Old Testament texts. The, the first is, you can write this down if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then secondly, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18. First, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It's known as the Shema. And it's referred to the Shema because the first Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear. To hear. So in response to the scribe's question, Jesus says, Hear, O Israel. That's, a, that's an attention-getting word. Hear, listen. Turn, turn all your equipment for understanding and focusing on. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. And this was a, a well-known passage. It was a very important passage, especially to religious Jews. A religious Jewish person would get up in the morning, first thing, and would recite the Shema. And as they laid their head down at night, they would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Repeated that first thing in the morning and the last thing at the end of the day. But also, every scribe just the gentleman we have here in front of us this morning, every scribe carried the Shema handwritten on a miniature scroll in his phylactery. Now you say, what, what is that? Well, phylactery uh, refers to a small case, oftentimes a little leather box, that contained Hebrew scriptures, various Hebrew scriptures, that the scribes would attach either to their forehead or to their forearm. And, and so it was, it was kind of like, uh, for you college students and, and for many others, you know, I, I have a 99-cent recipe card box in my desk, and I use 3 by 5 note cards for scripture memory, and I keep my scripture memory cards in that box, and it's the way that I review them. And uh, so this would be kind of like the scripture memory, the scripture review of the day. The scribes would carry around various scriptures in their phylacteries, those small boxes, either on their forehead or on their forearm, which served as a reminder to them to keep the law. To keep the law. The second passage that Jesus quotes here is Leviticus 19, verse 18. 
Moses writing here, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. You see, in one sweeping statement, Jesus summarizes the heart of all the commands. We see these same two divisions, by the way, as we look at the Mosaic Law. So, loving God and loving your neighbor. You see, the first four commandments, of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the first four commandments concern our love for God, right? You shall have no other gods, do not carve idols for yourself, do not take the Lord's name in vain, and honor the Sabbath. Those first four commandments have to do with how we love the Lord our God. Likewise, the final six commandments have to do with how we love our neighbor. That's honor your father and your mother. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and don't covet your neighbor's belongings. Those are all laws that have to do with how you should love your neighbor. And so we see these two classifications even in the Old Testament law. We are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the mention of the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength, this speaks to the devotion of the whole being. Our whole being is to be engaged as we love the Lord our God. You see, while the scribe is probably looking for a measuring stick with which to evaluate his rule keeping, Jesus clearly teaches in this text that we don't live by rules, rather we live by relationship. A loving relationship to God first and foremost. That is our vertical relationship that in turn allows us to horizontally love our neighbors as we should, namely as ourselves. You see, Jesus summarized the law in two sweeping statements here. The call to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. these two commands, or the character of the commands, is absolutely expansive. It's absolutely expansive. So I want to take a few minutes here and I want to look at each of these commands individually and, and break each of them down into their constituent parts. And so the first thing that I want you to notice here is the expansiveness of the first commandment. The expansiveness of the first commandment. You might want to, that's, that's under point number two there in your outline. I didn't give you everything to give you uh, the freedom to write what you want to write there, but that's where we are. The expansiveness of the first commandment is a part of Jesus' compelling answer here. The first phrase here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Let's just stop right there. The Lord our God. In, in Greek, uh, it's the word kurios, the, the Lord or master, but in the Hebrew scriptures, Lord is the word Yahweh there. The Lord Yahweh is our God. It emphasizes that Yahweh is Israel's covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant-keeping God. When God makes a promise, he will make good on his promise. You want a good verse to memorize this week? Numbers 23:19. Write that down. Numbers 23:19. Says God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? 
You know scripture doesn't answer that question? Right after that verse, there's, there's no answer to that question. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Scripture doesn't even answer the question. Why? Because the answer is emphatically implied. God never speaks and then not acts. He never promises and then not fulfills. Okay? God is a covenant-keeping God. The phrase here, the Lord is one, speaks to the fact that Yahweh is utterly unique. Our God is utterly unique. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who revealed himself as the great I am. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is utterly unique. Utterly set apart from all the lowercase man-made gods. Lowercase g, man-made gods. And then we see here, you shall love. You shall love. Let's, let's park right there. The word love here, it's the Greek word agape. It means to supremely value, to highly esteem, to be faithful toward, to delight in. It's a love that's purposeful and decisive. The command, you shall love the Lord your God, calls for a volitional. That means it, it commands or it brings into bear the will. It involves the will. It's a volitional commitment to God that is personal, that is comprehensive, and that is wholehearted. You shall love. Love. This is emphasized by the repeated words that we'll see throughout these two commands here. Uh, ek. It means out of. You shall love the Lord out of. Ek. Out of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Ek. Out of. That's the source of. And then all, all, out of all of you or the whole of you. Our love for God is to be a responsive overflow of his personal and comprehensive and wholehearted love for us. You shall love. Let's look at this next set of words here. You shall love who? You shall love the Lord. The Lord. The word Lord there, it's the word kurios, carries the the meaning here of master or owner or possessor or sovereign. That's who the Lord is. To love God means that we see him as our Lord and we relate to him as our Lord. It means that we are submitted to his word and that we are surrendered to his will. Remember uh, Jesus' words in Mark 8.34. Whoever would come after me, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is a lordship verse. He is the Lord. He alone is Lord. And as a Christian, he owns you twice. And not only by creation, once, but also by redemption. He owns you twice, therefore... We should live humbly surrendered and submitted to his rule. He is our curios. He is our Lord. The Lord, your God. Your God. This short phrase here, your God, is powerful. Su theos. Your God. These two words draw an absolute line in the sand. You see, notice the text doesn't just say God. It says your God. 
The personal pronoun there, your God, this speaks to the personal, intimate, saving relationship that God desires to have with us. But it is important here to note that God does not become your God, that is in a saving sense, until you repent of your sin and trust in the redeeming provision of His Son. He is your God by creation. He becomes your God in a filial sense or a fatherly sense, in a saving sense, by faith and repentance. Love the Lord your God. And then we get into four phrases here. First of all, with all your heart. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart. Heart is the word cardia here. It refers to the sincerity of both the thoughts and the feelings. In other words, we are to love God with uprightness or true-heartedness as opposed to a hypocritical or divided affection. The word heart, it, it refers to the core of our physical being. That's why in Proverbs 4.23 we, we see that that call there, guard your hearts with all vigilance, for out of it flows the wellspring of life. It's the core, it's the center of your being. The very core of our being should overflow with love for the Lord. Friends, I would submit to you that when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, loving Him in all the other areas of our lives won't be that much of a problem. Obeying all the rest of the commands won't be that much trouble for us if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And secondly, we're to love the Lord our God not only with all our heart, but with all our soul. Soul there, it's the word psuche. It's one of those fun Greek words to say, psuche. That P-S kind of goes together there. It refers to the, the seat of the emotions and our will. Our love for God should be an emotional love. Not like a sappy sentimentalism type of love, but an emotional love, a real love, a durable love, a feeling love. That is, we should not be ashamed to express our love with feelings and with warmth. We're not relating to God in a stoic manner. He's a person. All throughout the scriptures, we see personal pronouns used of him. We relate to him as a person. Our will is also involved. In other words, loving God is a decision that we make. Let me, let me be clear here. What I mean by that is that it doesn't just happen by way of autopilot. It doesn't just happen. It's a decision that we make. Having said that, we know that we can only love God because he what? First, loved us. Okay, so we're not trying to conjure up some love for God here. No, our love for God is merely an overflow of his great, unfathomable, unmatched love for us, demonstrated for us in the crushing of his son on Calvary's cross. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Mind, dianoia here, speaks to our understanding, especially to our moral understanding. The word mind, it refers to our intellect here. We're to love God with our intellect. 
Our affection for God is to be informed by our intelligence. That's in opposition to a blind devotion. We're not just relating to God with some sort of blind devotion. No, we relate to God based on intelligence. Where do we get that intelligence, by the way? Everybody grab your Bible and just raise it up in the air. A lot of places right now that churches are telling people that they get intelligence about God. Friends, let me tell you, God has told you everything he wants you to know in Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. That's the sufficiency of God's word. Okay? God has given us sufficient knowledge and understanding of himself in his word. And so we are to worship him with our intelligence. We're to love him with our intelligence. That intelligence is to be based upon or founded in Scripture, rooted in Scripture. What do I know to be true about God? It's a great question to ask yourself as you're having your your daily Bible study or your daily quiet time is what does this passage, what does this verse teach me about the nature, the character, and the attributes of God? How is my intelligence of who God is informed as a result of this passage? Love God with all your mind. Love God with all your mind. And then lastly here, love him with all your strength. Love him with all your strength. The word strength here speaks of our might or our powers or our ability. We are to put intensity into our affection. There is to be intensity Wise Solomon says this in uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your what? With all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, with all your strength. You see, friends, the call here is incredibly high. That is, every ability, every gift, every talent, every strength is to be mobilized to love the Lord your God lest we be tempted to think Jesus just gives a little summary statement of the law here, friends, let me encourage you that what Jesus does is he expounds upon the law. He expounds upon the law. What a high bar Jesus presents for us here. Four times Jesus calls for us to love God with all or with everything. Did you catch that, by the way? Four times the word all appears there. Jesus didn't say, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, some of your soul, some of your mind, and some of your strength. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And friends, if we are honest, and I am the we, we have failed to meet the demands of this principle command. Every single one of us, without exception, has missed the mark. We have missed the mark. When it comes to loving God, every single one of us struggle with a divided heart. Every single one of us struggles with a dispassionate soul. Every single one of us struggles with a distracted mind. And every single one of us struggles with anemic strength. That is a true statement of every single one of us. Young people, it's true of you. Middle-aged people, it's true of you. Singles, it's true of you. Those of you in your golden years, it's true of you and everyone in between. We have not loved God as we ought, but, but, 
thank God that Jesus loved God with unerring perfection. And his righteousness is credited to us by faith and repentance. Thank God that the captain of our salvation loved God perfectly. And that for all I have failed, for all the ways in which I have missed the mark, for all the ways which I have come up short, for all the ways which my love has waxed and waned, Jesus loved God perfectly. And by faith and repentance, all of his righteousness can be credited to my account. Wow. That's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel message. You must believe. You must repent and believe the gospel message lest you be in your sins and trespasses. But Jesus doesn't stop here. Even though he answered the question the scribe asked, he continues to raise the bar so that living out the commandments, I would submit to you, so that living out the commandments by human effort alone might be shown to be impossible and unattainable. And so we see the expansiveness of the second commandment here. Look at your Bible there. Jesus says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love. Let's start there again. Here's the word agape again. I am to love others with the same kind of love with which God has loved me. This agape love, it describes an unconditional, sacrificial pursuit of the good of others. Just think about the last 168 hours, friends. How has your love toward your neighbor been? Can it be described in terms of a continual, unceasing pursuit of good toward your neighbor? This is the love that God is and that God demonstrates in supreme form at the cross. It loves even when the object of love is hateful or unlovely. Friends, many of us probably have been treated in a way that does not, from a human perspective, elicit the response of love. But that's not the way the Bible teaches us to respond. Not to respond out of our flesh. We're to respond out of God's revealed truth. And so we love people. We love our neighbor even when... They struggle to be lovely. Even if they don't love us back. Whether it's deserved or not, we are called to love our neighbor. And it's a love that exists entirely apart from the possibility or the expectation of ever being loved back. It's important to note that there's a marked difference between what it means to like a person and love a person, though. Uh, track with me here for just a second. There's a marked difference between what it means to like a person and love a person. To like a person is to relate with them uh, in, in some sort of e emotional way, with a certain set of emotional feelings, but love is not primarily a matter of feelings. Okay? It's a matter of the will. I choose to love you. I choose to honor you. I choose to serve you. It's not just a matter of feelings. That's what it means to like somebody. To love someone is to respond to them irrespective of feelings. It's a matter of the will. And so you say, well, what about my enemies? Uh, what about my enemies? Well, friends, in your flesh and I in my flesh, 
we will rarely, if ever, feel like loving an enemy. We must choose to love our enemies. Furthermore, because love is a matter of the will and not feelings, it is always possible to love another person. Okay? You can struggle to like a person, but you cannot, on any biblical grounds, say it is impossible for me to love that person. You catch that? We cannot use that type of language. It's not biblical language. It is never impossible to love a person. You can say things like, I won't love a person, but you can never say, I can't love a person. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. He didn't say feel as if you did. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, Lewis says, we will find one of the great secrets. When you behave as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, on the other hand, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more people as he goes on. Why? Because he first loved them. Love people, and you will come to like them. Love them first, and you will come to like them. Well, who? Who here? Well, the who is your neighbor? Your neighbor. Jesus answered this question of who is your neighbor, by the way, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That would be a good place to go back and study this week. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Luke 10, 30 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The word neighbor here, it literally means the one who is near. You say, well, who is my neighbor? Well, who's near? Who's close to you? That's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. You see, your neighbor is not just the person who is your friend. Your, person, your, your neighbor is not just the person who looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, or grew up in the same place that you grew up. It's not the person who runs in the same social circles that you run in, or even presently lives in the neighborhood that you reside in. You see, according to Jesus, your neighbor is anyone who wears a skin of suit, or a suit of skin. That's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. And so the question I would ask is, how are we doing there? How are we doing there when it comes to your coworker, when it comes to the person who lives next door, when it comes to the person that you, uh, that's, that's close to you in your dorm room, the person that you're ministering to? H- how are we doing when it comes to our neighbor, those who are close to us? How are we to love our neighbor? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says. Everyone in this room loves themselves, right? If you love yourself, raise your hand. Every hand should go up. We don't have any problem loving ourselves. We don't have any problem taking care of ourselves. We don't have any problem seeking self-attention when self needs attention. When the tooth hurts, you go to the dentist. When your belly grumbles, you go to the refrigerator. When you slam the hammer on your on your thumb there you know you you go see the doctor you know whatever it takes you take good care of self every single one of us loves self we don't have a problem loving self but to love another person that's difficult to love another person is difficult and not only to love them that's not the standard the standard is to love your neighbor as yourself 
in the same way that you think about yourself, in the same way that you care for yourself, in the same way that you treat yourself, you are to think, care for, and treat others. If we loved like this, there would be no problems in the church. There'd be no problems in our home. There'd be no problems in our community. The problem is that we don't love like this. We don't love like this. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus goes on to say that there is no other commandment greater than these. You see, if we loved God like he commanded us to, then we would never break the first four of the Ten Commandments. If we loved our neighbor as we ought to, then we would never break the remaining six commandments. You see, when, 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 when everything is stripped back, when, when all the, the, the layers of the onion are peeled away, all of our problems and sins can be traced back to a, uh, a lack of genuine love for God and a lack of genuine love for our neighbor. To fulfill these two commands is to fulfill all the commands. Well, number three on your outline there, you'll see a close but incomplete analysis. We see a curious question, we see a compelling answer, and then lastly here, we see a close but yet incomplete analysis. Let me uh, encourage you to turn your attention there to verse 32 through the end of the text there. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, God, is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all or the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's interesting to note here that this particular scribe's response, which is favorable, this scribe's favorable response is the only time in Mark's gospel where a scribe responds to Jesus in a favorable light. It's the only time that we see it. As a matter of fact here, uh, often as we look through Mark's gospel, we see the scribes critiquing Jesus' words. We see the scribes critiquing Jesus' activities. Uh, back in chapter 2, the scribes charged him with blasphemy because he, for, he claimed to be able to forgive sins. In chapter 2, they, they evaluate Jesus eating in the company of sinners and tax collectors. In chapter 3, they, they claim that Jesus was possessed by a demon, that he cast out demons by the power of demons. In chapter 7, the scribes charged Jesus' disciples with not following the, tr the tr traditional hand-washing practices. In chapter 11, they question the origin of his authority. We saw that just a few weeks ago. Again, in chapter 11, they were fearful of his rising popularity, so they wanted to kill him. We'll see here in just a few chapters. In chapter 14, that the scribes collude with Judas to capture Jesus. Again, in chapter 14, the scribes will assemble a trial before the high priest as Jesus is just hours before his execution. In chapter 15, the very next morning after this uh, trial is assembled, the scribes consult with the chief priests and the elders to hand Jesus over to Pilate. And then lastly, the scribes are there mocking Jesus on the cross, saying he saved others, he can't save himself. It's the only time in Mark's gospel that a scribe responds to Jesus in a favorable light. I think while the scribe might have started out as a pawn of the Pharisees, 
who were valiantly trying to gather reason to destroy Jesus, after having heard Jesus speak, after having heard Jesus' reply to his question, which of the commandments is most important of all, this scribe's heart begins to soften. His heart begins to soften. Furthermore, the scribe took it one step further even by adding that this kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus is speaking about, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that that kind of love is more important than sacrifices. It's more important than sacrifices. A conclusion, I think, in this setting that seems to be an, an implicit critique of all the activity that was going on in the temple that was just steps away. Because what was going on there? It was all hollow, empty religion. All kinds of sacrifices, all kinds of, of smoke billowing up from the sacrifices of animals, but it was all hollow. It was all rule-keeping. It was all legalistic rule-keeping. And so this scribe here, he, he gets at least in part what Jesus is saying. He's saying that to love God and to love people, like you say, is much more important than everything that's currently going on in the temple. In the sight of God, to love God and to love others is elevated over all the stoic, lifeless, mechanical, strictly religious rule-keeping of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Friends, you can burn offerings, you can burn sacrifices all day long, every day, and have a heart that is cold and light years away from God. You can do all the right things mechanically and have a heart that is light years away from God. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Note Jesus' response to the scribe here. Mark writes, And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, listen to this phrase here, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The word, the word wisely here, it's a Greek adverb. It means understandably or sensibly. The scribe answered in, in, a, in a way that showed understanding, in a way that was sensible. But it wasn't just about being wise. Something more is needed. Something more is necessary. You see, when Jesus responds to the scribe and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, what he's doing is he's encouraging the scribe, I think, to go the rest of the way with wholehearted devotion. In other words, your mind seems to be clicking in the right gears, but go all the way. Go all the way. Repent and believe. Follow me if anyone desires to follow me. Let him follow me to the cross. Go all the way. You see, I think the scribe admires Jesus here, but whether admiration was ever converted into the discipleship, Mark doesn't tell us. We don't know what happens to this scribe here. But I think there is a glaring comparison to the response of this scribe and the response of the rich young ruler back in chapter 10. You see, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks questions and he seems to be tracking he seems to be moving in the right direction and then right at the very end when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to go sell all that he has and to follow him, the response is, he couldn't. He wouldn't. 
He wouldn't. The idols of his heart, the idols of his heart stole his affection. Love of wealth kept the rich young ruler from discipleship. And it's possible that the pride of intellect keeps the scribe from true conversion. One Greek scholar writes this. He says, the mental acumen, the, the, the ability to mentally process, which detects and approves spiritual truth, may, in the tragedy of human life, keep its possessor from ever entering the kingdom of God. You can have all kinds of right information packed in here between your ears and still be lost. And still be lost. You see, the scribe has knowledge and the scribe has sincerity, but his performance still merits the wrath of God. In other words, he's not measured up to the, to the, to, to the law. He's not measured up to the, the, the commandments that Jesus has just uttered. And so he's liable. All the correct theology in the world can't save a person. All the genuine sincerity in the world cannot elevate a person to a place that secures a status uh, as an authentic member of the kingdom of God unless our religion, and I, I don't even like that word, but unless our religion shows us our need for Christ, then our religion will actually condemn us. If what you know does not lead you to the cross, then what you know will condemn you. Lastly, look at verse 34. Look at this last phrase here. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Makes sense, does it not? It makes me think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Friends, we cannot live up to God's high standard. Moral righteousness and rituals are not enough to make us right with God. No amount of rule keeping could ever make you right with God. But the good news is that Jesus obeyed this commandment and every commandment perfectly and that all of his righteousness can be credited to my account. That's the gospel. Given to us freely by grace alone, through faith alone. Do you know Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone? Has his obedience, all of his righteousness, been credited to your and my otherwise bankrupt account? To respond affirmatively is what it means to know Jesus savingly. To respond negatively may mean that you may know a lot intellectually, but what you know will condemn you. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sufficient for salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray that if there is any person here this morning who doesn't know you, any young person, uh, any single person, any married person, any older person, that they would come to a place of repentance and faith. Uh, Lord, we know that no amount of morality, no amount of, of law-keeping, no amount of sincerity will gain us entrance into the kingdom. We will, just like this Pharisee, 
only be close. Father, I pray that there is not a person in here this morning who is only not far off. Lord, would you save? Would you convict? Would you bring deep conviction where it's needed, Lord? And would you draw any individual here who does not know Jesus savingly to faith in him by faith and repentance? Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.